Top of the morning. Jim Douglas sitting in today on Vermont Viewpoint. Glad to have you with us. We've got a great show today. We're going to begin with our conversation with Commissioner Jennifer Morrison of the Department of Public Safety in just a moment. Then at 9.30, Jason Gibbs will be by. He's the uh, governor's chief of staff. We'll talk about uh, the Governor Scott's legislative priorities this year as the uh, session moves along. At uh, 10 o'clock, we're going to chat with Matt Denhart, the president of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Uh, last year, as our listeners, I'm sure, know, was the centennial of the president's inauguration, but a lot more activities coming up this year as well. And then at 10.30, we'll wrap up with Matt Dickinson, professor of political science at Middlebury College. Uh, only nine months till Election Day, or actually less. I don't know the number of days. Some people probably are out there counting. But um, we'll talk about the uh, state of the race, as they say, not only for the presidency, but uh, other uh, other categories of uh, public office. And there was a new ranking that came out this week of uh, the best presidents in history and We can talk about that, although I wouldn't put a whole lot of uh, credence into the uh, statistics. But we're pleased to start off this morning with Jennifer Morrison, our uh, Commissioner of Public Safety. Uh, Commissioner, welcome to WDEV. Well, good morning. Thank you, Governor, for having me. Well, it's a real honor for us, and uh, I think it's an important beat that you have right now. It it seems like every time we turn on the TV, the news leads with some um, criminal conduct or crisis of one kind or another, so it it can't be be easy, and I know that... um, uh, public safety is not only your job description, but your passion, and and uh, Governor Scott uh, is taking it very seriously, too. Um, so I, I guess it might be good to start uh, just uh, just to get a, a, a sense of the landscape. And how, how would you categorize the, the level of safety in the Green Mountain State today, and, and has that changed in the recent past? Wow, that's a loaded question, sir. Um, <laughs> I guess... What I would like to say is that we can talk about data, we can talk about statistics, and there are those who are going to out of hand dismiss them and actively refute data that comes from trusted sources, including our own uh, vetted data here in the state of Vermont. Um, And then we can also talk about perceptions of safety, because in my experience as a law enforcement professional, Um, Data can tell a story, but really what matters in our communities is how people feel and whether they believe they are safe. And toward that end, I would say that we are hearing from all over the state of Vermont that people do not feel safe in their downtowns and even in their neighborhoods and sometimes even in their homes based on uh, the rise in violent crime that is mostly associated with illicit drug trade. Well, no question you've uh, seen it from many vantage points. Uh, Commissioner Morrison was the acting chief in Burlington, the chief of the Colchester Police Department. And I certainly hear, as you do, uh, Commissioner, about uh, or from people who say, gosh, I don't want to go to downtown Burlington anymore. I've heard from businesses who say their employees don't feel comfortable, especially after dark in the winter. So so I guess we do have some work to do. And I, I know that you and the governor have... Uh, been not only thinking about it, but but acting on this, and uh, uh, Governor Scott announced a 10-point plan to attack the, the problem of violent crime. So tell us about that. Well, as you know, uh, last that the, the plan that you're speaking of uh, was launched in the fall of 2022, um, really when we saw a quick and dramatic uptick in 
uh, violent crime, a lot of gun crime related to the drug trade. Um, and that level of violent crime has not necessarily leveled off. Our homicides are up in the last two years. Um, there's any number of indicator that will tell you that violent crime in Vermont has uh, gone up dramatically in the last three years. Um, the 10-point action plan framework for uh, public safety enhancement and violent reduction was one way that the governor's team is addressing this. And, you know, there are components of it across the 10 points that we have already done. Uh, one was to prioritize Vermont State Police mutual aid. Um, as you know, we provided resources to the city of Burlington when they were really in the throes of, of, of an uh, uptick in violent crime. Um, we have been leaning in with other communities as well. And, of course, we make our special teams available to any community 24-7, 365. And they have seen a lot of use, whether that's the major crime unit, our crime scene search teams, or our hostage negotiation units or our tactical services units. They have been in uh, active use throughout the state uh, all, every, uh, pretty much every week of the year. Um, we also participated in the Chittenden County uh, Federal Task Force to combat violent crime. Uh, we have organized ourselves inside state government to try and uh, free up as many state police resources as possible. And that's only possible when our partners at the Department of Motor Vehicles, Department of Liquor and Lottery, and Fish and Wildlife use their law enforcement assets to pick up some work that the state police traditionally would have done. So together, internally, we are better coordinated. And indeed, those other agencies have taken parts of our workloads off of off of our plate so that we can focus on uh, violent crime in our communities. Um, some of the other points of the plan related to the judiciary and working with the judiciary to eliminate the backlog of cases and to coordinate with the attorney general to facilitate effective allocation of prosecutorial resources. Those are ongoing missions that, of course, you know, we we are aware that, that there's no one and done with either of those, but those are ongoing uh, uh collaborative efforts with other players in the system, so to speak, uh, to move cases along more quickly and to ensure that people are held accountable when they are causing harm in our communities. Um, well, sounds great. I guess the, yeah. I guess the most visible piece of the 10-point plan is uh, point number eight, where the governor charged all of the departments and agencies in state government to apply our pandemic response model to public safety social services, and mental health challenges. And that is where a lot, I would say, of resources have been focused um, to bring together players from the Agency of Human Services, the Governor's Office, the Department of Public Safety, the Agency of Digital Services, and then other state agencies or departments as necessary, such as uh, the Department of Labor or the Agency of Education together. And together we are um, better understanding and quantifying crime and disorder in certain um, uh, high-violence communities in the state. And we are meeting weekly to provide resources to those communities um, and also to better understand how the state can be a good partner to the resources on the ground so that we have a seamless response to whatever it is that local communities are experiencing in the moment. So we've done some pretty incredible work in uh, three communities in particular, and there will be more to come. 
and we've developed some resources that all communities can use. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an overview of the 10-point plan. Well, that's great. Uh, I wasn't aware of a lot of that and a very comprehensive approach to the challenge that the state and our communities are facing now. And uh, it's great to hear about the cooperation with other state uh, agencies, too, because uh, folks have said to me, you know, I don't care uh, what uh, color uniform somebody is wearing when I have a crisis. <laughs> you know, I just want some help. So it's, it's good to have everybody working together. We're chatting with Jennifer Morrison, our Commissioner of Public Safety, and, and I wanted to ask you about the uh, resources in particular because uh, um, you've got a lot of uh, specialization in the state police um, uh, working with other agencies but we see this defunding the police in Burlington and and uh, sometimes it's it's not easy to recruit um, people into law enforcement there's a, a time frame to get them trained and up and going I mean, what, what's the status of of, uh, of, of the workforce in, in public safety in Vermont now it's very challenging, and we are not alone in that challenge. Um, our colleagues across the country are reporting similar uh, workforce shortages. Uh, you are correct that the um, tenor and narrative of the last three or four years has made a very challenging recruitment environment Um I mean, there's a lot of dynamics that go into that, particularly in Vermont. We have an aging population and fewer young, younger people are staying here to make their career and their, and, you know, raise their families, et cetera. But of course, policing is a, a young person's game. Um, and making the profession appear, um, not to be one of honor and, um, to be an honorable profession as it always was regarded in the time that I came up through the ranks has hurt our efforts to recruit people who want to serve and want to do something that helps their communities. Um, I do think that that's changing a little bit. Uh, it's going to take, I would, I would estimate it's going to take us a decade to recover from um, a very unfortunate three or four years of, of um, narrative that, that, that uh, is not necessarily true. Um, so we are working very hard in the Vermont state police to, raise the number of recruits that we are able to hire for each of the academy classes and to put them through field training and get them out in service to the community. That being said, we are facing an unprecedented uh, vacancy rate. Um, we have more than 50 vacancies in our sworn ranks of 330, um, and that puts a tremendous strain on the day-to-day -day service provision and filling shifts. Um, and then when there are spikes in, say, homicides or major uh, crimes that, that shift a lot of investigative resource, we then have to shift people who would normally be in a uniform responding to calls on the street, have to backfill into the space where investigators are tied up. So it has been an extremely challenging time to juggle our resources. Um, and I know we're not alone. I know that this is happening across the state of Vermont. Um, and to some degree, we perpetuate this cycle because one agency, let's say a local agency, will secure a very rich contract and they will hire away. They're not hiring from out of state generally. They are hiring from other Vermont agencies uh, because they have the best pay or the best retirement. And the cycle continues of, of one-upsmanship, but we're still mostly feeding just from the same pool of recruits. So what we really need to focus on as a country 
is raising the profile of this profession, making it meaningful and impactful to serve your community, if not for an entire career, for a period of time, perhaps three to six to seven years, um, so that we can really have a broader pool to pull from because we're not, we just don't have it in Vermont to, to fill all the positions that are vacant. Well, it's challenging in any time, even in so-called normal times, but as you explained, uh, especially now because of the uh, particular challenges that we're facing. So best of best of luck with that. We're chatting with uh, Commissioner of Public Safety Jennifer Morrison. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, drugs earlier, and I, I, I think we need to focus on that for just a minute because uh, that does seem to drive a lot of the criminal activity we, we're seeing. We hear that uh, some drugs out there are uh, more potent than they used to be, more dangerous. Um, how would you characterize the, the drug problem in the Green Mountain State? It's massive, and we have to talk honestly and openly about this. Um, we have to keep the focus where it should be, which is on people and communities. Uh, and clearly what we have been doing about uh, drug addiction is not working, so we must do better. Um, in the past five years, four to five years, Vermont is getting less safe. More Vermonters are dying from drug use, and our public spaces and downtowns are suffering, as you mentioned earlier, Governor. Um, so we have to focus in a different way, and I think that means in a more diversified way, um, we have leaned in heavily to harm reduction strategies for 10 years now. And be clear, harm reduction is a vital part of this solution. We cannot go without it. But what harm reduction strategies don't do is it does not reduce the size of the addicted population. And candidly, I think we need to really focus on reducing demand in our communities because there will be an endless supply of profiteers coming in from out of state, and indeed they are fueled by out-of-country cartels, organized criminal enterprises that are pumping drugs into our communities because it's extremely profitable to come to little old Vermont to sling your dope. And it, that supply chain will never uh, – we, can, we cannot arrest our way out of it. We can, it is whack-a-mole. We can arrest one, two, five dealers, and there will be 10 behind them. We must reduce demand. And to some degree, that requires greater accountability for people who engage in behaviors, whether or not that is fueled by drug addiction or something else, people who engage in behaviors that harm our communities, that create repeat offenses and leaving other community members feeling unsafe and vulnerable, we have to start dealing with those people in a credible manner. We have, we have a lack of credibility in our reputation right now. We are regarded up and down the East Coast as being soft on crime, uh, as being unwilling to incarcerate people, um, and absolutely being unwilling to incarcerate young people who are very experienced criminals by the age of 17, 18, 19 years old um, and are part of organized uh, gang activity that are here to sell drugs in our communities. And when we do take them into custody, the best we can generally do is give them an invitation to appear at court months later and send them back to their source city um, where they are frequently well-known to law enforcement in those communities. So, we have to uh, work on accountability at every level of the system, at those high-level drug profiteers who are preying on our vulnerable citizens. And we also need to hold accountable those lower-level 
uh, repeat offenders who are creating a, a sense of um, lack of safety in our community. So we have proposed uh, six areas to improve, improve criminal pretrial release procedures during the course of this session. I don't know how much of the nitty gritty you want to go into, but uh, the governor and my team take very seriously this issue of having greater accountability and losing the reputation of being soft on crime. Um, you did mention, Governor, the types of drugs that are in our system, and I just, I'm looking at some statistics from the Vermont Forensic Laboratory, which, of course, is one of the divisions of the Department of Public Safety. And in 2015, 100% of baggies that were tested in our lab contained heroin, and only 8.5% contained fentanyl. That was in 2015. By 2018, it was 100% had heroin and 43% had fentanyl. And by 2022, only 44% of those baggies had any heroin and 100% contained fentanyl. So just right there, you can draw the through line that um, fentanyl has become the dominant drug and it is frequently now being mixed with uh, drugs such as xylazine, uh, which in 2021, we only saw 12.5% of baggies containing xylazine. And in 2023, that was up to 56% of heroin and fentanyl cases also included xylazine. So the drug, the drug market and synthetic opioids is an ever-changing landscape, and we need our laws to evolve with them. Uh, and I'd be happy to say more about that if, if that's of interest. Well, very sobering, uh, Jen, uh, to be sure. You certainly got your work cut out for you, and we're delighted that you're on the job. Um, well, I, I can't say that our discussion's been uplifting, uh, Jen, with all the challenges out there, but let, let me ask you about a different a aspect of what we were just discussing about the challenges that you and your colleagues are facing. Um, it seems like we often see on the TV people uh, uh, complaining about uh, one item to which you referred, uh, the jails are too full with uh, people who shouldn't be there. And then we've got uh, complaints about biasing, uh, bias, uh, policing uh, of one kind or another, uh, stereotyping potential uh, arrestees. I mean, that, that's part of this whole scene, I guess, isn't it, where, where we're just not taking um, public safety seriously enough in terms of holding people accountable. Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, God, I thought you liked me. That's a loaded question. Um, so I think that there's two separate issues here. There's one, which is the issue of real or perceived bias in policing. And I think that in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, law enforcement has leaned in heavily to this conversation. And we are far more uh, well-trained and equipped to uh, ensure that bias does not find its way into our key decision points. Um, is that a perfect, is that going to be a perfect outcome? No, of course it's not. Uh, there, we're human, and as long as we employ humans, there will be mistakes and there will be uh, biases that do bleed through into decision points or actions. But generally speaking, we are light years ahead of where we were 10 or 15 years ago on the topic of um fair and impartial policing and understanding how by implicit biases work and ensuring that they don't find their way into the decision stream. Um, there is 
a, it's a difficult it's difficult to talk about the rise of homicides related to the illicit drug trade without touching the topic of race because many of the people uh, who we find either arrested or harmed more more importantly harmed by uh, the violence around the drug trade do tend to be people of color so that is not to say that local Vermonters are not a huge part of this puzzle. They are. Um, but if you look at victimization studies uh, by, and break it down by race, there's more people of color being harmed by violent crime related to drugs. And likewise, there's a higher percentage of people being arrested for crimes related to the drug trade that are of color than the percentage that are represented in the Vermont population. So it's hard to have a conversation around these without talking about race, and yet I'm not sure our communities are uh, yet in a space where we can have honest conversations about race that don't devolve into blaming, finger-pointing, um, and become very divisive. And, and I think that's a sad, sad reflection on where we are. We're not quite in a space. Again, there was a time where we were able to have those conversations, at least in my experience, and uh, policing in Burlington for 23 and a half years and in Colchester. And uh, I hope that day comes again where we can all come around the table and have candid conversations about some of these really difficult topics that are that are key to public safety. Well, I certainly hope so, too. And, and for the record, I do like you, and I was thrilled when Governor Scott picked you for the, the job. <laughs> we, we've, just, we've just got a minute or so left, uh, uh, Commissioner, and um, you, you alluded to this earlier. The, the Department of Public Safety is more than the state police, so just give us a, a quick sure. uh, uh, a rundown on what else the department does. Oh, yes, sir. I'd be delighted to. Of course, I said we're at home of the Vermont Forensic Laboratory, uh, home of Vermont Emergency Management, which was in full swing during all the flooding and weather-related events. Uh, the Division of Fire Safety, uh, which does far more than just fire-related things, and I'd be happy to – that's a whole show on its own. Uh, we are also home to the Vermont Crime Information Center, the Radio Technology Shop, and the um, Division of Administration and Finance. So there are seven divisions – inside the Department of Public Safety. Uh, we're about uh, 615 full-time employees and 800 all-in by the time our contract people and uh, part-time folks like those who work on our Swift Water Rescue teams are included. Uh, so it's a big operation, and, and it's deep, and it's broad, and it's really work that matters. Every single day we, we are engaged in important work to keep the state safe. Well, and we're very grateful to you, uh, Commissioner Jennifer Morrison, and your entire team for the hard work that you do under challenging circumstances. And uh, we wish you the best and hope that uh, you continue to uh, have good partners and, and opportunities to keep Vermonters safe. Thanks for being on the show this morning. No, thanks for having me. It's been great to talk to you, sir. We'll be right back uh, with... Um, uh, with uh, Jason Gibbs, the governor's chief of staff, to talk about other administrative uh, legislative priorities. So don't go away. Welcome back. Jim Douglas on Vermont Viewpoint today. We had a great uh, uh, conversation with Jennifer Morrison, the commissioner of public safety. I say a great conversation. It was certainly uh, sobering in many respects because of all the challenges that the state is facing in that uh, in that area. 
Um, but um, an important conversation, so uh, we're grateful for her time. We're going to be chatting with Jason Gibbs, uh, the governor's chief of staff, during this half hour. And coming up at 10 o'clock, Matt Denhart, the president of the Coolidge Foundation, will be here. And during that half hour, we're going to have the WDEV uh, premiere of a new song uh, that uh, features President Coolidge. Well, not, I mean... He, uh, the president is not going to be on the song, but but we're going to talk about him in the song. And then at uh, 10.30, Matt Dickinson, professor of political science, will join us uh, to talk about the election cycle into which we are uh, engaged already at this point, and, and uh, we'll see what he has to say about uh, uh, the next nine months. But Jason Gibbs, uh, Governor Scott's chief of staff, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, good morning, Governor. It's great to be with you. Well, a lot we could uh, talk about. Obviously, uh, the governor's um, laid out about a lot of uh, legislative priorities, as as he often does. We had a chance to chat with Commissioner Morrison about uh, the public safety enhancement team, part of the governor's 10-point plan for reducing violent crime. Uh, she uh, offered a lot of detail on that, and uh, best of luck as, as you pursue that priority. But there are plenty of others, and, and um, a couple of them, uh, come to mind, and maybe we should start with with housing, Jason, because um, that seems to be on on everybody's uh, uh, thoughts these days as uh, we try to find places for people to live, both those who are in our state now uh, and those whom we hope to attract here in order to grow our workforce. So uh, give us a sense of the state of housing in Vermont and, and what we ought to be doing now. Well, I think as all Vermonters recognize, uh, housing is a major challenge. Um, it's an issue that, that you flagged uh, when you were uh, in office and we worked on. Uh, it is uh, a challenge that has continued to develop. Uh, and in some ways, uh, it is, it is um, different. It's a different challenge from county to county or region to region. In one part of the state, uh, northwestern part of Vermont in particular, the principal challenge there is is supply. Uh, there's uh, uh, a more vibrant, uh, more consistently growing uh, economy in northwestern Vermont. There's natural gas. There's the academic, uh, you know, the, the land grant university, the academic medical center, the interstate highway system, the airport. There's all these sort of State, the rest of the state, uh, largely through policy decisions, has been denied many of those types of traditional uh, tools. And as a result, as the global economy has shifted, uh, we've experienced uh, workforce and demographic atrophy, uh, sort of uh, contracting workforces. Uh, uh, you know, we see that reflected in the condition of uh, formerly vibrant working class neighborhoods. Um, and the issue in many of our county economic centers uh, and the small towns around them is very different than what we see in terms of the housing shortage in northwestern Vermont, where it really is a supply issue. In many other parts of Vermont, you're seeing uh, the demographics sort of come home to roost, and the the challenge that we face in housing is one of atrophy. So. The governor's proposals uh, split into – I'm oversimplifying here – but into two parts to recognize this. One is one one set of proposals to jumpstart unit 
development and generation in places where supply is the principal concern, and another set of tools to uh, jumpstart reinvestment in working-class neighborhoods in communities like um, St. Johnsbury and Springfield and, and Rutland and Bennington and Brattleboro, where there are a lot of um, of, of neighborhoods with a lot of homes that are either underutilized uh, or in disrepair that if we can if we can get more working class people to return to these neighborhoods, we can uh, revitalize the communities, we can fill jobs, we can generate more tax revenue organically, we can put more kids back in our schools. Uh, and so that's the focus of our housing package. And we're, we're hopeful that we're going to get uh, some significant progress. Uh, as uh, Governor Scott said, uh, when he laid these out, if nothing really changes, then nothing's really going to change. So we're going to have to get serious about uh, reducing or eliminating the barriers to housing generation and to housing reinvestment that have been built up uh, over the last uh, 40 years or so. We're chatting with Jason Gibbs, the governor's chief of staff, and one of those barriers that we hear a lot of discussion about is the permitting process, specifically Act 250. What, 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 are, what are the governor's thoughts on reforming it, and, and where, where do they stand? Yeah, uh, so again, a, a full suite of proposals to reduce those barriers while maintaining uh, the integrity of our environmental protections to, to make it uh, faster and therefore less expensive to site and build uh, homes in the areas where we want them most. Um, uh, we're getting a good response, I would say, in uh, the Senate and a less than enthusiastic response from uh, from the House at this point. Uh, in fact, one of the House committees proposed to radically expand the jurisdiction of Act 250 uh, in a way that would, we think, uh, truly decimate our uh, our housing economy even further and make it next to impossible to achieve the revitalization and the reinvestment in housing that we need to, to deal with all these other major economic challenges, whether it's property taxes and, and school funding or um, or supporting the expansion of more and better paying jobs. So well, it's kind of a mixed bag at this point in the legislative session, but um, we're going to remain optimistic. Uh, and if the legislature defaults to its sort of old um, political perspectives of the past, then it will ultimately be up to Vermonters to decide uh, in November if they want to send some more balance uh, to the legislature, and uh, that'll be a conversation for another time. And Jason, one other aspect of the housing crisis is homelessness, uh, and we've seen the the uh, utilization of our hotels and motels, uh, for example, beginning during the pandemic in, in, a, in a substantial way, and uh, there's still there in, in many cases. So what, what, what's going on with that? Yeah, it's a, that is a, it's a real mess, to be honest with you. Uh, the, the pandemic program, the pandemic era hotel motel program made a free hotel room available to anyone who asked for it. And it was uh, federally uh, funded uh, at the time. And that program grew into the absolute juggernaut uh, uh, that it, that it, that it has become. Uh, we are working diligently uh, to uh, to reduce the profiteering in that program. The average price for a hotel motel room in that program has has been about $150 a night. Uh, you can do the math. If we're housing somebody at $150 a night for the course of a year or longer, 
as many tens of thousands of dollars that uh, uh, could be better invested in more permanent housing solutions for them uh, and others, uh, or uh, invested in human services that that uh, help them to address uh, whatever the underlying uh, issue or issues are that are uh, leading them to to homelessness. We're also simultaneously, uh, while we work to bring that cost from 150 to about 80 dollars a night, uh, we're also restructuring the safety net program to make it more like a, a safety net. So hotels and motels would continue to be part of the equation. Uh, we think over a 12 to 24 month period, we could reasonably reduce the number of uh, hotel motel units in the program from uh, around 1,600 or so uh, today to uh, something closer to half that uh, in the next 12 to 24 months, very likely 24 months. The key here is is housing unit generation. It's not just shelters, although we are working to expand safety net shelters, the sort of more traditional type homeless shelters that people probably probably envision. But the real solution to this is the same sort of solution to our middle-class housing, our middle-income housing crisis, and that is better regulatory process that is, that is faster and less expensive, uh, 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 more uh, support uh, for housing reinvestment, to take the disincentives in the tax in, uh, tax system and turn, invert them, make them incentives for investing uh, in housing. We have got to have permanent units to cycle people who are stable, but being housed in the safety net program, sort of kind of trapped in the safety net program because there's no affordable permanent option for them to transition to. We've got to have housing unit generation on a significant scale uh, far faster, higher volume than we do today, so that we can move folks out of the safety net program up up the economic ladder into a permanent uh, rental property, into a permanent uh, home ownership opportunity, and so on. That that pipeline doesn't really exist. We have started over the last couple years to open that pipeline, and we have uh, about 430 or so units in the pipeline over the next 18 months that'll be dedicated for transitioning people out of the hotel motel program. But that's only about 20 or 25 percent of our total need just for that program. Uh, so we've got to do we got to do better, and the way that we do better is by uh, passing the regulatory and tax incentives that the governor's proposed in this housing package. And obviously, uh, hotels and motels are supposed to be for our visitors, <laughs> tourists, and business travelers. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's it's I, I mean, it's um, at some point during the pandemic. Uh, the it, the sort of whatever the rate was was whatever the federal government paid uh, that that deal has persisted uh, as the program has become state funded and at this point we're looking at 150 dollars a night as compared to the commercial market rate for these properties and they are very clearly profiteering so we have we have got to we have got to get the the rates for these rooms down to a, a more reasonable and fair level for the owners so that they're still profiting even above what they would make in the commercial hotel motel market but we can't we can just we can no longer justify paying them so much more than they would otherwise earn particularly because we're guaranteeing occupancy and there's no sales cost there's no marketing cost there's very little housekeeping cost 
Um, there's all these operational costs of a hotel motel. They don't even pay lodging tax because most of our clients are are there beyond the 30-day window. That makes it all um, that that uh, exempts them from the short-term uh, lodging tax policy. So there's um, some restructuring on the financial side that has to happen. We're hopeful that our hotel motel owners are going to want to continue to be good community partners while we restructure the overall safety net program, and uh, we'll do the best we can. Well, good luck with that. Uh, Jason, we've got a call. Lon from Colbyville is uh, calling into the show. Uh, go ahead, Lon. Yeah, well, speaking of that, you know, the tail end of that, I appreciate and everything. My thought is, is I grew up here. I've been, I'm 55 years old. I grew up next to Shaw's, Waterbury. Where Shaw's and Waterbury is now, what people call Waterbury, it's actually Colbyville. But we used to play ball, and uh, it used to be a gravel pit when I was growing up. My grandparents lived right across from the mobile station. And this used to be a whole-built community. There used to be, like, houses upon houses, apartments upon apartments. And they they tore this whole town down just to put strip malls in and reconstruct it. And I wonder, because well, I'm a homeless man, I live out of my camper, all right? And I, I sit back and I listen and I wonder how hard it is to struggle. And I think about the thought when my grandparents were alive, and I used to sit on the front lawn looking out, watching traffic go to stow. And, and I wonder, where's the foolishness in this? They tore down hundreds of hundreds of houses just to put strip malls up. They tore down the whole town. They flooded Waterbury Reservoir. If anybody ever researched Waterbury Reservoir, they flooded the whole town just for the commodity of it. Well, Lon, I think, uh, is pointing out uh, uh, perhaps a factor that led to this crisis, Jason, hasn't he? When we, uh, over the years, tore down a lot of housing, replaced it with commercial development, and now here we are. Yeah, in some areas that's certainly true. Um, uh, as you recall, Governor, uh, Act 250 was put into place at a point where uh, land speculation was uh, was rising and was uh, was having a very negative effect on Vermonters and on the price of property, on the price of housing. And at this point, it no longer meets our needs and, in fact, is having uh, the counter, uh, the opposite effect of what was intended. Uh, it was intended to, to slow speculation, to keep prices affordable, to help to uh, manage land use in a more responsible way. Now it has effectively that and other policies, not just our land use policy, but other policies passed in Montpelier have made, you know, it costs it, it costs much more uh, to build housing in Vermont than it does uh, commercial uh, buildings. We've got to we've got to deal with we've got to deal with that. I mean, it 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 costs us almost uh, half a million dollars per per affordable housing unit uh, through the publicly financed uh, uh, affordable housing programs. Like that's just. Uh, that math just does not work out uh, based on our income levels, uh, based on our employment opportunities, uh, and much of that is policy-driven impact. So we can have an effect on how 
much it costs to build housing uh, and therefore how much housing costs to buy or rent. But we have to be willing to change to change our public policy at least long enough to significantly increase the number of units of housing uh, that are both affordable and available uh, to working Vermonters uh, to rent and buy. Um, we know we need about 6,900 units to make uh, our um, to make our housing market healthy and put downward pressure on prices. Uh, in the status quo, I mean, today we we, we have a deficit of about 6,900 uh, affordable and middle-income uh, units, uh, and that number goes to about 5,000 additional low- and middle-income units per year uh, through 2040 if we're going to, again, create an overall marketplace where um, – uh, where Vermonters, working working class Vermonters, have access to uh, affordable home ownership opportunities, uh, and it's it's not just about home ownership. Like we can't we cannot solve our education finance challenge until we get home ownership squared away. Uh, uh, home ownership and uh, affordable, affordable apartment rentals have to be available to working age families in order to draw in the the people and the students that we need to refill our schools and to support the tax base that's necessary to fund our schools. So it's not uh, housing is hugely important uh, as an issue in and of itself, but it is also the cornerstone of the solution to every major system challenge that we face as a state. Uh, let me just ask about the property tax issue, Jason, uh, for the short term. Is there anything we can do to avoid this 20 percent increase? be determined. Uh, I, I think it's it's probable that there will be some knobs that can be turned and levers that can be pulled to to moderate that slightly. But the reality is that Governor Scott's been warning about this cliff for eight years. He's mentioned the imperative uh, uh, to adjust to the changing demographics structurally in our in our public education system. He's proposed from 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and now 24, a series of uh, incremental, challenging, challenging, but incremental changes that would uh, have helped to avoid this this cliff. I mean, this is an issue that, that you flagged uh, when you were in office, uh, the, the overall demographic trajectory, the, the need for the system to be more nimble and responsive to those changes, um, to get more of the money that we're, you know, we're currently spending over $2 billion on about 80,000, just under 80,000 kids in our public education system. It's among the highest per pupil, the very highest uh, uh, per pupil in the country. Uh, if 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 I gave any educator two billion dollars and said devise uh, uh, the country's best education system, it wouldn't look anything like what we're currently operating in Vermont right now. And uh, we've just got to we've got to come to grips with the reality of the situation and get more of the money that we are spending in education into the classrooms. Uh, in the form of curricula and opportunity for students as opposed to uh, being trapped in a lot of underutilized and aging uh, overhead. Uh, it's not easy, uh, but, you know, in 2018, for example, the governor proposed moving all school employees to the state employee health plan. 
that would have reduced uh, the cost to the system by $25 million that year, increasing in value as that change um, uh, uh, moved through budget cycles over time. We've proposed other uh, uh, initiatives and changes. Again, not easy things to do, sort of uncomfortable changes to make because uh, change is always hard. But it would have been incremental and cumulatively would have added up to well over $250 million in savings uh, over the last several years. And uh, we could have avoided this big, this big spike. Uh, and, uh, but here we are. Uh, the legislature has uh, refused. I mean, you remember we had we had multiple veto overrides. We had a budget showdown that went to the end of the fiscal year. It's that it's not for lack of trying. It's just um, for for whatever reason the legislature, the majority in the legislature, has been just fundamentally unwilling to to tackle this issue. And consequently, here they are confronting. Uh, I think what would be the largest property tax increase. Uh, in on record since the creation of, of since the passage of Act 60. So, um, uh, I do, we're, we're going to work with them to try to alleviate it, but the the reality is uh, there is structural change that is going to be essential to avoiding this cliff in the future. Uh, or it's just a cycle that's going to continue to repeat itself. Well, on that note, Jason, uh, we've unfortunately uh, run out of time, and I, I want to apologize to some callers who've been waiting to ask you some, some questions. We hope we'll have that opportunity uh, at some point in the future. But Jason Gibbs, Chief of Staff to Governor Phil Scott, thanks for your time, and best of luck in the rest of the session. Thanks, Governor. Appreciate it.